Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Okie doke, here we go. <coughs> Good to see Maggie and Dave back and Francesca from their, from their gaddings. <coughs> and there's a few that are... Uh, they got these tummy bugs, so we'll just pray for them first. Father, just pray for those who are struggling with all that stuff at the moment, just um, for a touch of healing, a blessing, and uh, uh, that uh, you'll bring life to them in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. Um, <clears throat> I went on a bit long last time, two weeks ago, probably just, you know, we haven't done this for a while, so I'm out of practice. <clears throat> so I'll try not to do that um, I'll try not to do that uh, tonight. Um, and I don't know whether we'll need the board tonight. It's not a board type thing, but if we do, we'll write. You can doodle as to your heart's content. <coughs> so I want to I wanna, um, wanna start off tonight by reading <coughs> a few verses from a psalm. <coughs> Um, some of these things, um, you know, I think I think sometimes I can be a little bit guilty of, of trying too hard to not be too rooted in where we were and how we would talk to help some people, and it doesn't always work. But I must admit, some of this stuff is like a comfort blanket, you know, uh, to me, because it, it has a connection that, that's meaningful. I want to talk about it a bit, and then I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, about pilgrimage and the way forward. <clears throat> so it's in uh, Psalm 84, and um, <clears throat> I preached on this, um, on these few verses on several occasions, but probably not for a, a long, long time. But um, <clears throat> this is what it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains also cover it with pools, and they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Um, yeah, very poetic language, but dealing with a, a subject matter that I actually think has some real importance and relevance in the context of, of our journey and our way forward, and that's the whole issue of... Um, pilgrimage and being pilgrims. Now, of course, um, one of the problems we have in, in the context of the adulteration of language and, and perspective is that um, when I now think of pilgrims, I think of, um, I think of, yeah, thanks Eunice, whoever's chattering out there, I can hear them as well. Um, uh, I think of, um, you know, like people in sackcloth taking the difficult route to Jerusalem or you know, that kind of stuff. People in the Middle Ages going to visit relics because they thought there was some 
miracle power in the relics. Or I think of things like the Crusades, you know, the pilgrims in the Crusades who were uh, killing Muslims in the name of God, trying to take back Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, of course, if you take that on the other way as well, there's, there's issues of things like pilgrimages to Mecca, if you happen to be a Muslim and all that kind of stuff. Um, what it doesn't always do for us is convey, actually, the, the, the deep, important significance of, of what being a pilgrim is. Um, and I'll give a little bit of a definition of that in, in, in a moment. Um, but just coming back to these verses, just a couple of comments on, on this. Um, it, it talks about something being triggered um, in and around those who set their hearts on pilgrimage. Now, if we're going to put any weight at all by what we know as a scripture or Bible, and I think we've done a, we've done a lot of um, deconstructing on that, we've done a lot of challenging to our old views of, you know, um, um, uh, in, infallible and inerrant. Uh, and we've looked at some of the history of, of how Bible has come and how it was written, where it was written and who was involved and all that stuff. But if we're not careful, we take it so far that we actually cease to believe that it passes on a wisdom that's talking about a power that is connected to states that we can be in. And, and uh, thank you. Uh, and um, the... Um, the issue of, of, of this pilgrimage is here that, that he's talking about the fact that those who set their hearts on pilgrimage, um, what it says in verse 6 is interesting because he says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, now the valley of Baca is the valley of tears or the valley of sorrow. And uh, it says that as pilgrims pass through the valley of tears, they make it into a place of spring. So the suggestion is that there is a, a strength or a power or something that comes out of us when we engage in this thing called pilgrimage that begins to change the environment around us. It begins to bring a transformation into the midst of circumstance. Now, now here it's talking about there is a power in pilgrimage that can dispel the tears that we so often encounter in our experience of going through the valley. And, uh, and it says not only is it stopping that, because it says as they pass through, and of course it's talking about passing through, not stopping there, uh, that they make it a place of springs. So the suggestion here is that not only does the commitment, heart commitment to pilgrimage allow us to pass through a valley of tears, but it allows us to change that place of tears to a place of springs, which, of course, in the poetic language, is really talking about, um, you know, springs is where fresh, unpolluted water comes up out of the ground, okay? So it's talking about there is a release of something um, when our hearts are set on pilgrimage and we are willing to pass through these experiences, even like the experience of of tears. It talks about the autumn rains also covering it with pools. Of course, you're speaking in context of, of um, um, BC um, Israel and Judah and the weather patterns there and how the autumn rains were significant to them in the context of their harvest and process. It's talking about these things being loosed. And verse 7, it says, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, don't worry about that last line because that's, that's very specifically located to, 
to the culture and conversation that you would have if you were a Jew reading this written by a Jew. But what it's really saying is that, is that this brings, brings pilgrimage somehow brings us through the Valley of Tears and changes it to a place of springs where we get a fruitful environment where we begin to go from strength to strength. Now, now is there anybody in here that doesn't want to go from strength to strength? You know, and sometimes we can be so dismissive of these things when actually it's far better if we put our desire on the fact, yeah, I want to go from strength to strength. And um, this, this, kind of, this kind of process is picked up in the New Testament when it talks about going from faith to faith, when it talks about from going from glory to glory. It's talking about a progression that takes us to something more, something better. And, uh, and so, so the, my question would then be, if, 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 if those who've set their hearts on pilgrimage are, are blessed in this way, that, the th- that things happen when you engage this process, the question would be, how do we know what that's supposed to be? You know, because it sounds good and it would be really nice if it's true. So... I kind of were trying to think that for some def- definition, and this, this is what I came up with. I'll read this because it's easier just to read, then we'll talk a little bit. Pilgrimage is a journey you undertake to a place you feel you must visit in order to truly move forward in your life's journey. That's really what a pilgrimage is. It is not always physical. In fact, it is most often internal. So let, let's get that out of the way straight away, that... When we talk about pilgrimage, we're not talking about doing something difficult so that you can somehow become worthy of receiving something because of you did something difficult. It really is about undertaking that journey to, to somewhere you need, feel you need to visit in order to truly move forward. So, so, so most often, for us, it's an internal thing. Pilgrimage is an internal thing. I, I could argue that we watched William Paul Young um, a few weeks ago, that when he wrote the shack, that was a pilgrimage. Because, because the shack he wrote for his children, and he was writing about, about that place deep in the woods of your heart, of your life, the place that you know is there, and it holds pain, because the shack was the place where, in his novel, the guy who had abducted his daughter murdered his daughter in the shack. So really it was symbolic to him of the pain in his life, the difficulties where, where things had been taken and there had been, there had been loss and hurt and dismay and abuse. And that was the place he didn't want to go. So the shack was all about William Paul's young journey, his pilgrimage to the place that internally he needed to go if he was ever going to move forward. So sometimes our pilgrimage will take us through the valley of Baca, it'll take us through the place of tears because internally there's some places we have to visit in our pilgrimage that are necessary and important if we are going to move forward to where we, we, we are looking to get. Um, so, in fact, it's most often internal. True pilgrimage is not a round trip. That's one of the big problems now because you see pilgrimages advertised to lords and, and it's a round trip. We go there, we have a look, we see if something happens and we come home. And uh, that's not the nature of pilgrimage. The nature of true pilgrimage that you set your heart on is not a, is not a return ticket. 
it's not a round trip. The true pilgrimage is not a round trip. Its motivation is not the search for another experience, but the desire for transformation. True pilgrimage is a one-way ticket to never being the same again. So when, when the psalmist says whose heart's set on pilgrimage, it's when your heart's set on getting a one-way ticket to never being the same again. And that's often why it leads through the valley of Bacchus, through the valley of tears, because that's not an easy journey, because we're going somewhere with no intention of ever coming back to what we were or where we were. That's true pilgrimage. Once you truly set your heart on it, there can be no going back. So the question then would be, how do we know what that looks like in practical terms? You know, because these are kind of hypothetical, theoretical. What does a pilgrimage look like in practical terms? Well, you know, my pilgrimage in some ways is not your pilgrimage, is not someone else's pilgrimage. It, 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 it should have a joint goal, um, but... but the elements of that pilgrimage may not be the same. But there is some wisdom we can give that, that fits all. So how do we know what it looks like in practical terms? Well, you know, again, I'm, I'm a Bible person. That's where I root a lot of my understanding. We, we've talked to quite a lot of late about <clears throat> Abraham, you know, leave your country, people, father's house. Those three, three spheres of influence and, and each sphere being more confined and more specific and, and, in essence, more difficult. You know, the last one being Father's House, which is, that's where, you, that's where you get your true identity. It's not just community, but it's identity. When you get down to Father's House, that's your identity. That's where you got your name. And so we, we know from uh, this essence of Abraham leaving Father's House that somewhere in this pilgrimage, there is a need for us to to leave that which identified us for a period of our life. And for some of us, um, that identification was such a close father-child attachment to the church and the ministry of the church and everything the church taught that that becomes our father's house. That's the thing. We had our identity in that. And uh, nobody was rooted there more than me. And that's why I say um, sometimes I get nostalgic for that but I said something in there that uh, the motivation of a pilgrimage is not a search for another experience, but a desire for transformation. And I know that my desire for that is actually just wanting to experience the feeling of some of those things. Um, but my identity was locked in that, and I could say it wasn't even really in biblical terms, in our terms, in essence, probably not in Christ. It was more in the church than it was you know, in anything else in the institution. So, so when we have this, this image of Abraham, which I'm just using as one particular illustration of what it looks like in practical terms, the Hebrews, Hebrews, no, Genesis 12 verse 1 says, the Lord had said to Abraham. So I want to deduce this from that, that if the Lord had said to Abraham, when he finally left, it was not the result of a sudden acceptance of a spoken word to him. It was the moment at which he realised he'd been being told this for a long time. 
that actually the essence, the nature, the, the substance of the pilgrimage was being put before him for a long, long time before Abraham ever actually got up and said, okay, I get it. So I'd say this to some of you, if, if Abraham didn't get it for a long time and you value Abraham as this great spiritual patriarch, then I guess there's a lot of breathing space for you and I. Uh, because usually when we come to something, it's not that the Lord said that, it's he had said that, he has been saying that, um, and we've just kind of caught the plot. So, so you've got this thing of the Lord had said. So, so my point on that is, what does this look like in practical terms? That we may not recognize it now, but there is a consistency of, I'll call it word. There's a consistency of something that speaks to us, that is drawing us on. And I think life speaks to us. I think, I think you know, if the universe declares the glory of God, that's, there's lots of things are speaking to us about with a call to pull us forward in our journey, okay? To draw us onto this pilgrimage. So, so the, other the other essence of this, the other element of this is the Lord had said, go. So we know that going is part of the what this practically looks like. Uh, if there's no going, then there's no leaving. So, you know, but the problem is when it comes time to go, it's usually the most difficult time. When you're leaving something that you value, when it comes time to go, you know, when you're leaving a loved one, when, you're going, when it comes time to go, that's when it really strikes home. But part of the practical essence of this is that you have to go... The other part of it is that, and I will show you, he said, he said, leave your country, your people, your father's house, go to a land that I will show you. So the other essence of pilgrimage, true pilgrimage, is that you are being shown uh, where this is leading, but you are not given the end in the beginning. And of course, that's where faith comes into this, if, if, if we believe this is a good thing and a God thing, then that's where faith comes in because it's a land that I will show you. Now, of course, what that also challenges with us, which, which we are addicted to, is certainty. Because go and I will show you doesn't offer any certainty other than the certainty that you are being told to go and you will be shown, which by its very nature suggests that if you're going to be shown, whoever it is who is telling you to go, and says that you will be shown, he's going to be there to show you, if you know what I mean. But um, if, if you are not, if you're not up for the uncertainty, and if you're not up for what we talked about last week, the, the whole issue of paradox, you know, the opposite to certainty is not uncertainty, the opposite to certainty is paradox. And paradox can seem to be conflicting sometimes, but we said last week it has one foot in reason and one foot in mystery. So we call to this, at least this place of faith, if we're going to go on, on a pilgrimage. So here's how that is related later in the New Testament. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith, which is what it takes, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, Obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Now, here's another thing that we know about pilgrimage. You will feel like a stranger in a foreign country. 
And uh, if you can't handle that, then the reality is you're not going to be a pilgrim. You won't go on a pilgrimage because that's the nature of pilgrimage. Remember, it's a one-way, it's a one-way ticket. It's a one-way journey. So, so we have to get used to feeling like a stranger in a foreign country. Now, in the areas we've moved into as a church and in ministry, I've felt like a stranger in a foreign country. And uh, I think as a church, we've been a little bit like a stranger in a foreign country. And um, it goes on to say he lived in tents. Okay, well, you know, tents is the word, Bible way of saying he didn't put down any roots to where they couldn't up and move further at a moment's notice. Um, again, in biblical terms, all the problems started nationally with Israel as a nation when they built the Jolly Temple. And yet you would think that the temple was a great idea because let's build this temple to, to honour God and all the stone and the, the wood and the gold. But the problem is once you've done that, you're stuck. And uh, then you begin to be so so respectful towards the building and what the building represents that you then don't want to leave that because it took a lot of time and effort to do that and, and we've got a lot of money invested in that and look how beautiful it is. And, and, and so the temple might have seemed a brilliant idea but I actually think, I actually think the temple was a terrible idea. Now, you could say, but God told them to build the temple. But God, if God told them to do a lot of things, then some of the things God told them to do was so that they could actually experience what it was that their hearts and minds were already wanting to do, so that when it was there physically, they could see that was a bad idea. So they were always meant to be tent dwellers, um, you know, not because there was some, you know, you all got to be travellers and gypsies, but it was so that you would never get so fixed in a certain place that you, A, didn't want to move, and, and B, couldn't pack up everything and move when you needed to. Now, I think the problem is that we were raised and taught, and, and society still does, teaches us to make our belief system so rigid that it's like we've built a temple, whether, whether it's a temple to God or a temple to whatever. We, we build that temple and then we, we are not able to move. We're not able to move forward. We get stuck. And uh, then we can't pilgrim. So, so part of the practical essence of this is you will be like a stranger in a foreign country. You've got to get used to living in tents. But it says, but he was looking forward to the city with foundations, dude, architect and builder is God. Now there's a little bit of creative language in there. But the things I was pointing out is that you feel like a stranger in a foreign country. Your habitation is tense, which means everything must be able to be moved. Nothing must be too precious to be shifted, and you should be looking forward all the time. That's what we're trying to do at Q. Uh, whether we're doing it well or not is for others to decide. But that's what we're trying to do because we've set our hearts on pilgrimage. So... What role then does and should um, the Bible and Scripture play in this would be my next question. Um, because I don't want anybody to think because we have asked the questions we've asked or um, expressed the things we've expressed that somehow 
we have such a low regard of Scripture that now none of it means anything, because that wouldn't be true. What we sought to do is say, okay, we have this collection of ancient sacred text, and we, we're not getting rid of it, but we want to know what to do with it so it can best be what it was meant to be from the very beginning. So that's why I asked the question, what role does and should Bible and Scripture play in this? Now, I do not believe that the Bible exists primarily to increase our knowledge. Um, I think that's been a dangerous shift in Christendom, in, in, in church life, that, you know, somehow if you had a lot of Bible in you, somehow you were something. Well, yeah, you were a pest, that's what you were. Um, you know, because it, it's like you couldn't be reasoned with, you couldn't think. It was almost like you'd been programmed with all this. You know, the Bible clearly says, well, I've told you before, the Bible doesn't clearly say much about much, to be perfectly honest. Now, I would have argued this with you a couple of decades ago, but, you know, having seen now that we've got over 30,000 denominations and growing... Um, every one of them with an interpretation of the Bible is clear indication that the Bible's not done, you know, doesn't clearly say much about much, otherwise that wouldn't be happening. And uh, when you release yourself from thinking the Bible was not there to clearly say everything about everything, its purpose was very different, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. We've touched on it before, but I'll, I'll throw some other light on that, um, you know, in... in the last part of what we have to say, we still have to ask the question then in the context, if, if this thing is about a pilgrimage, a journey to this place, you know, we, we want to we make it and there's something transformative happens when we have that heart and spirit, what role does the Bible and Scripture play in that? So I really don't believe that the Bible exists primarily to increase our knowledge. I believe it exists to give us a framework by which wisdom is acquired. Now, of course, the right next question would be, what is wisdom? Uh, well, let me read you something from Psychology Today. Okay. This, this is an article from Psychology Today about wisdom. Uh, wisdom is one of those qualities that is difficult to define because it encompasses so much, but which people generally recognize when they encounter it. And it is encountered most obviously in the realm of decision-making. Psychologists tend to agree that wisdom involves an integration of knowledge, experience, and deep understanding that incorporates tolerance for the uncertainties of life as well as its ups and downs. There's an awareness of how things play out over time, and it confers a sense of balance. It can be acquired only through experience, but by itself, experience does not automatically confer wisdom. Only now are researchers beginning to look into the social, emotional and cognitive processes that transmute experiences into wisdom. Wise people generally share an optimism that life's problems can be solved and experience a certain amount of calm in facing difficult decisions. Intelligence, if only anyone could figure out exactly what that is, may be necessary for wisdom, but it definitely isn't sufficient. An ability to see the big picture, a sense of proportion, and considerable introspection also contribute to its development. 
So wisdom is important. That's the psychology view of what constitutes wisdom. Um, so what is wisdom in Bible terms? Well, wisdom in Bible terms is the ability to live life skillfully. And I like that definition. Wisdom is the ability to live life skillfully. Wisdom is not knowledge. A whole bunch of people running around with knowledge who've not got an ounce of wisdom. In the same way that education is not intelligence. And one of my problems with the university system, looking at James, is that in some, in some quarters we educate people beyond their intelligence. And so their intelligence does not coincide with their education, but their education suggests that they are capable of things that they are not intelligently capable of. But we allow them to do that because their education says they're intelligent, when no, their education says they're educated. Two different things. Or that person must have wisdom because look at all the knowledge that they have. But knowledge is not wisdom. So I like that wisdom is the ability to live life skillfully. Wisdom is not knowledge. And the book of Proverbs in the Bible says a lot about wisdom. And one thing it does is it always attaches wisdom to understanding. Now I like that because, because Jesus talked a bit about, you know, you've got ears to hear, but you don't hear because if you did hear, you would understand and you'd be converted. Um, also in the parable of the sower and the seed, where we have, you know, sowing the seed and 30, 60, 100 fold return. And then Jesus, Jesus explains the parable. He said, he said, the seed that fell on the rocky ground is like this, this and this. And the seed that fell on the thorny ground is this, this and this. And um, he uses a phrase each time. When he gets to the one where the seed that fell upon good ground... This is the phrase he uses, that, that um, he who hears and does not understand is like the seed that fell on the stony ground. He that hears and does not understand is like the seed that fell on the thorny ground. And of course in the end he says, but the one who hears and understands is like the one where the seed has fallen on the good ground and that person brings forth a hundred, sixty and thirtyfold return on the seed that has fallen. So don't be over, over condemning on yourself about this subject of understanding. Um, I actually think understanding has got more to do with desire than cognitive ability. Now I think cog you understand cognitive ability is basically, it's got cogs in it because cognitive means when the cogs all work together, right? <laughs> So when we talk about cognitive ability, we're talking about the brain's cogs all turning the right one. But I actually think, I, I, I put a lot of store behind desire. Um, in, in a lot of sports arenas, there are many gifted people, whether it's, you know, at the top level of, of, of football or whatever, who, who won't make it to the highest level and... And um, yet some, some people are naturally gifted, which you know, and that's just a bummer, isn't it? I mean, that is a real bummer. It's like, what's all that about? You know, people who just 
can do and don't seem to put a minute's effort in, uh, they're, they're a rarity. But something you often hear in, in those fields of expertise is, is that the ones who were in the group but had the greater desire, they're usually the ones who actually come through because their desire takes them beyond their natural ability and allows them then to begin to draw on something more than that. So I actually think in, in, in our journey for wisdom and the need for wisdom, I think, I think the desire to have wisdom is probably the greatest, the, greatest, um, the greatest element within the process that actually allows us, if we have the desire, we keep desiring, then I think that, that helps us to understand. The process to understanding, if we don't desire to understand, and I think that's one of the problems generationally, it's a problem we've discussed many times at leaders level, is that sometimes you can't get through to people, not because they can't concentrate, but because at the root of it, they have no desire to understand. So the issue no longer becomes how long can a person concentrate and listen, it becomes how much desire is there to understand. Because if wisdom is the ability to live life skillfully, somewhere down here, all that's going to go belly up. I could have used a worse word there, which I'd like to use. Because these things are necessary and they're important. So, so wisdom in, in the book of Proverbs is always attached to understanding. Desire to understand, right? Because I think, I think in, as much as you desire, you will start to see that you begin to understand. Because something inside of you is going, I want to get this. I don't mind how long it takes, but make sure the desire is there. So just a few verses from Proverbs chapter 4. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 4, I'll read this from the New King James. Get wisdom, get understanding. Don't forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honour you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendour. Now that's very poetic. You know, using the language of love, but, but, but really what they're doing, it, 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 it talks in Proverbs about wisdom being a woman. Now it's very sexist. You're in a, you know, you're in a, um, um, a very male-dominated culture, so it's not surprising, but... You've you got to just look past that. What he's using is the language of love, kind of saying the, the same emotion and investment that you use to love someone or love something is what will allow you to, to, to gain and lay hold of this thing called wisdom, okay? So again, the desire for understanding which releases then the wisdom and it's full of grace and it's like a crown of spender and all very nice and wonderful poem and whatever. Um, do remember though that wisdom embraces paradox, the one foot in mystery and other in reality, while claiming the two are neither mutually exclusive or incompatible. So even in the realm of wisdom, um, expect some surprises. Okay, that's all I'll say on that. We talked enough about that last week. So we've looked at 
the, you know, psychology of wisdom. We've looked at what the Bible says about wisdom. And then in psychology today, ask the question, what, what, do wise pe- what wise people do differently? So what is it that wise people do differently? So I'll read you this. Wisdom largely emerges from reflection on experience. Wisdom involves nuanced thinking, considering many different perspectives of a situation rather than employing black and white thinking. I like that because that's really what we've been trying to do here. The nuances, the, the, the not black and white thinking is where wisdom finds its place. Wise people are also open to new ways of thinking, challenging the status quo to produce a novel or unexpected outcome. They also have considerable tolerance for uncertainty. Balance is a key component of wisdom as well. Wise people generally act on behalf of the common good, but also ensure that their own needs are met, striving for harmony among competing demands and goals. Wise people also seek to understand the motives of others, rather than merely judge their behaviour. These are all things that we've been trying to teach you, you know, before you presume yourself qualified to judge a person's actions, familiarise yourself with a person's story. These are all elements of the wisdom that that brings the change. Uh, In addition to fostering understanding and respect of others, wisdom often provides a fulfilling sense of purpose in life. So purpose in life is also connected to wisdom, which has expressions like we talked about on Sunday of joy, that's then all connected to this idea of making the pilgrimage, journeying there. Uh, So, if the Bible is going to help us in this quest, then how is it going to help us? Does it have anything to offer? Um, Can we disregard it now as, well, you know, we're not sure about whether it has anything to say, you know, like some fundamentalists would say, well, you know, if you're going to say that any of it is not true, then you have to say that all of it is not true, which is, that's just stupid. You know, we've grown up with some stupidities like that. It is what it is, and like I said before, it was never there to give us knowledge, it was there to help us to get a grasp on this thing called wisdom, which actually is the greatest help in our pilgrimage, which is then what helps us to turn the Valley of Baca from a place of tears to a place of springs and, uh, and, and all of that stuff that we talked about there. So um, there are two critical questions that need to be addressed, which I believe will allow it to make its best contribution. Because I want, I want scripture to make its proper contribution. Um, and I base this on my belief that there is an overarching story that is conveyed in scripture, but there's also an underlying one in that same scripture. So scripture has an overarching story which covers everything, and it has an underlying story which speaks into everything, okay? An overarching story that covers everything, an underlying story that speaks into everything. And in the context of our pilgrimage and and our quest for this wisdom that we've talked about 
that is necessary, I wanted to just talk about these two things for a, for a few moments. So what is the overarching story and what is the underlying story? So by the overarching story of Scripture, I mean a clear recurring theme which can be observed from Genesis to Revelation. Now I personally believe it's there. I, I don't look at Scripture mostly as a detached connection of a gathering of books, a canon of books. I know we've talked about that before, but I don't see it as just, you know, a collection of writings from different times. I see that there is something about it, mysteriously, paradoxically, that has an overarching story, a clear story, a clear recurring theme that can be observed from Genesis to, to Revelation. Now, we obviously don't have time for me to cast my view on all of that um, tonight, but I'll, I'll give you some ideas. I, I, think, I think the overarching story, this clear recurring theme, is about from chaos to order. It starts right there in Genesis. Um, I would, uh, I might be wrong, but I'd put my hat on it and my shirt as well. That Genesis 1 and 2 was never intended to scientifically express the time scale and the, and the way in which the earth was made and humanity came into being. There are all kinds of questions we have to answer. If, if Adam was literally the first man and Eve was literally the first woman, there are lots of conflicting questions that we would have to answer. You know, the, the ones you get when I was growing up and trying to tell people about Jesus. Where did Cain get his wife? You know. And, and you know, I, I thought those were just evil confrontations, but actually they're very legitimate questions. And... Uh, I think if, if the point of the Bible was to give a scientific explanation for how these things came into being, then, then there are some huge problems. But if it, if it wasn't, then that question's no longer an issue because that's not what it's about. That's not the point it's trying to make. So, so for me, I've told you this before, um, Genesis chapter 1 through to the beginning of chapter 2 which expresses the seven days of creation, is a seven-step process that brings us from chaos to order, darkness to light, nothing to something. We start with chaos, we finish with rest. Now, now it's going to be a very, very weird human being that does not want to go in their life from chaos to rest. Whenever chaos shows up, we don't say, this is brilliant, I've got lots of chaos, I'm glad I've got chaos. What do we want to do? We want to make the journey from chaos to rest. If darkness is in our life, we want to find the thing that brings light into our life. If we find ourselves in a place of, of total emptiness and bereft nothingness, we're looking to find something. The whole question about who am I is simply that question, how do I go from this sense of being nobody and having nothing to feeling and knowing that I am somebody and I have something. It's the same quest. 
Okay? So from the very beginning, the overarching story is covering those elements. Now, I, I could walk this through and say, okay, bear in mind this is written about people, and in that we've got stories of movements and all kinds of shenanigans going on. But overarching all of that is this consistent theme. So chaos to order, darkness to light, nothing to something, hatred to love, bondage to freedom, death to life, war to peace, despair to joy. Over and over again, it's this same journey of transition, but just with different labels over the door, going from there to there. So, you know, um, archaeologically and historically, how accurate is the story of the children of Israel in Egypt and their journey out? Doesn't matter. How wasn't the point? The point is, it's another expression of the overarching story. We got ourselves into bondage and we need to come out of bondage and we're probably going to need some help to get out. But when we get out, we're willing to go on a pilgrimage to set our heart on pilgrimage to have a one-way ticket to where we need to be so we're never going back and we're prepared to live in tents we're prepared to be like strangers in a foreign country as long as we can get there so so I don't even believe that those writings were written so that we could have a historic perspective on the children of Israel one of the interesting things that you'll notice if you if you study scripture closely is um, the problem of dates and the problem of, of the passage of time. And, um, I mean, I can't go into it all tonight, but uh, I don't know if you know, but in the, in the Hebrew understanding, only that which is significant counts. So in their recording of their history, they could leave out big chunks and it looks like, hang on a minute, where's... What happened there? Nothing significant. So it didn't count. They say, well, where's the overarching thing in that? Because he does not deal with us after our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquity. In other words, it's not significant to God, so it doesn't count. Blessed is the man, the guy who wrote the psalm we read earlier, David. Blessed is the man whose iniquities the Lord will never count against him. Well, hang on a minute, I've done those things, why don't they count? Because in the context of the mercy and grace, they're not significant, therefore they don't count. Overarching story that flows right into the New Testament and grace. There are things God doesn't see as significant, therefore he doesn't count them, so he doesn't count my iniquities against me. Does that make sense? So we've got this overarching story all the time that wherever you drop in, um, I can usually give you a perspective that says, look, here's the overarching story. Here's, here's what that's really saying. You know, even if you go to things like, you know, Jonah. Was he swallowed by a great fish, it says. We made it a whale because it's the greatest fish that we know. It'd be great if he was. I mean, it's... And I quite happily could say that he did and could and I mean inside of me I, I think I believe it but that's not the point you know the point was that 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 Jonah needed delivering somewhere that was critical 
to the forward momentum of his life. And even in his reluctance, it's like the Lord had said to Abraham, and in his reluctance, somehow Abraham gets to a place. With Jonah, there's a reluctance. But he's swallowed by this great fish, and it talks about it was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and then it spat him out on the shores of Nineveh. And uh, again, that's a wonderful story because... Um, God has every intention of forgiving the wicked people of Nineveh as they were known, the wicked people. And Jonah was ticked because he knew he'd get there and he wanted to give them the, you know, the nth degree of what nasty people there were. And uh, he didn't want to go for one reason because after he spat out by the fish and he's talking to God, he said, I knew it, I knew it. I knew it, I knew I'd get there. Now I'm all ready to bring down fire and brimstone. You'll flip and forgive them. I'll find that they're released and forgiven and you're just going to pour grace and kindness upon them. And that upset Jonah. What's the overarching story? Church people get upset at the goodness of God. Religious people find themselves offended at God's mercy. And where's the overarching story? The Pharisees, grossly upset at the kindness of Jesus' overarching story. All these things are coming through all the time from beginning to end. Can't get away from it. So, you know, there's more I could say on that, but that's just a little snippet to say that there's an overarching story that goes from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Ask me questions on that if you want. I don't mind. We can look at any story you wish. So that's what I mean by that. The underlying message, which runs parallel with the overarching message, but they're both doing different things, okay? So there's one overarching, it covers everything. It's the same theme. This is what it's about. This is how you look at Scripture. This is what it's about, okay? Don't get stuck in the story to the extent where you fail to see what it's about. It's all about God restoring, okay? The underlying message seeks to develop our wisdom to assimilate the story that is overarching. So how do we assimilate this overarching story that's darkness to light and chaos to order and hatred to love and bondage to freedom and death to life and war to peace and despair to joy and, and oneness of being and all the other things you might want to chuck in there to say a part of that process. How do we assimilate that? Well, the underlying message is what works to help us to do that. And let me explain what I mean by that. The, the underlying message speaks and works in the now and the present. So there's something about this whole thing that's always in the now and it's always in the present. And it's always personal. And it's always appropriate. And it always has a context. It's the realm of the always present God and the disappearing Christ. Now, let me again explain that because we've said a little bit about this. Um, there are Old Testament examples of this, which I could take you to. A guy called Melchizedek, we can leave that. Um, other examples of this, that the, the man in the fire with the with the three Hebrew lads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fourth man in the fire, um, and then he disappears. And of course, the one I used with you um, a couple of months ago was uh, Luke 24, when, 
when these guys after the crucifixion were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus turns up and talks to them and they don't know it's him. And uh, he starts opening up the overarching story. It says, from the scriptures, he explained to them, beginning at Moses, he explained to them the Christ, overarching story, word made flesh, God with us. Um, And then it says he would have made to go further, but they wouldn't let him. And of course, I explained at the time that geographically, there was nothing really beyond Emmaus when you were going from Jerusalem. Uh, and he, would, he says he, made to, he would have gone further, but they constrained him to stay with them. Or in other words, they said, don't go any further. This is where we live. This is where we stay. This is where our roots are. We want you to stay. You're back to the Abraham thing again. Father's house. This is where we live. This is our identity. So, of course, the question with that is, when we could be led further in our spiritual journey with the divine, how many times do we constrain him to stay where we are? because we don't want to go any further than we've gone, because we're uncertain about what's beyond that. So graciously, it says that Jesus went in with them and he stayed with them. And uh, it says that, you know, when he broke bread with them, their eyes were opened and they realized who it was. And it said their hearts were burning within them. You know, and I asked the question, there's a difference between a heart burning Uh, a burning heart and heartburn. And, uh, you know, some people have just got indigestion at the whole prospect of being a pilgrim. Um, You know, but their hearts were burning. uh, And it says the moment they recognised him, he disappeared from their sight. My point on that being, in, in modern parlance, that Jesus disappeared before they could take a video of him and put it up on YouTube and post it on Facebook, and take their pictures and put them on Instagram. The reason being that that if that was allowed, the Jesus who they met that day, in that moment, for that purpose, for that revelation, would have been the frozen Jesus that they would have ever had, because this is what Jesus is like. We have his picture, we have his video. Look, we can show you where we posted it on this date. And so we would have been stuck with that's all that Jesus could ever be because we freeze an image of him. Now, the lesson of that is, which is why I say the underlying story is when you're on your road and you happen to have an encounter and you recognize something of God, something of the divine turned up, the, the usual thing is that then actually, in essence, he disappears from your sight. But what we tend to have done is taken a snapshot of that moment. So this is how God shows himself. This is what Jesus is like. This is what happens when Jesus shows up. And then we live in that snapshot moment, and then we just try to repeat that over and over again, which has been the story of most church life. Well, we did this to get in the presence of the Lord, And uh, something happened, so we did it again the week after, and we did it again the week after, because we have a snapshot of, of a moment of an experience. Now, the trouble is, those moments can be the greatest barrier to our moving on in the pilgrimage, because we didn't understand that God is always with us, but, but Jesus disappears. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
the, the, the manifestation that in the moment I'm here, wow, that was amazing, disappears for the reason that we have to allow that to be lost in the wisdom that says this happens in many different ways at many different times, each one as powerful as the other, but often no two being the same. So the underlying message seeks to develop our wisdom to assimilate that overarching story in the now and present, realm of the present God and the disappearing Christ. And it's the metaphor, the innuendo, the signpost within every story. So the underlying story is, is the story within the story. It's the what's happening within the story, within the words that, okay, this is, this, is, this is describing something that happened, but within that is something personal and something important and something special and something amazing. For example, we talked on um, Sunday when we were talking about joy, about, about the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, um, you know, there was a wedding. Some people got married and Jesus was a guest. When you start to look at the issue of this was the first of his signs, hang on a minute, here's what's happening now. The overarching thing is God will be there, God turns up, God is kind. The underlying story is much stronger. The underlying story is this is the first of his miracles. Why? Because you're supposed to know what's important to God. What's important to when he visits. And lo and behold, we get the opposite to what we were ever raised with in church. His first, his first, I was going to say exposing himself, but you can't say that anymore, can you? His first revelation of, of what you might call his ministry, his purpose on the earth, is at a wedding, it's at a party, and his first miracle is not healing a blind person, opening the eyes of the blind, you know, healing a leper, making a lame man walk. His first miracle is changing water into wine, which you could say, well, that's a bit insignificant, isn't it? You know, but if you're the people at the wedding, it's not at all insignificant. And if we're not careful, what we would gather is lame people are important, blind people are important, lepers are important, tax collectors are important, but ordinary people like you and me aren't. So right from the very beginning, the underlying story says you're important, your gathering matters. The lack that you've experienced because you underprepared... It's okay, I've got it. I've seen it, I understand, I feel your pain. And then you've got Jesus' mother saying, do something, Jesus, and him saying this thing about woman, my time hasn't yet come. And then the next thing is doing it, which suggests that it wasn't in the script, but the needy encountered put it in the script. That, that's not... You know, the planning of the ages from before time ever happened, there will be a king. And you, it's the whole issue of this, this sense of trying to get into us, this immediate, immediacy that says, when your need in the moment is picked up, 
He is aware of that need and he is willing to shift and move in order to be present with you in the context of that need. And then, of course, you've got some of the other issues like we talked about of, you know, why does it make plain to us that what they put the water in was ceremonial water pots, 30 gallons apiece, 136 litres apiece, six of them. And as I said on Sunday, that's a lot of ceremony, that's a lot of ritual. Because it was making the point that, that, that in, in the essence of what we do, we fill the thing up with a lot of ritual. We naturally fill it up with a lot of ritual and, 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 and a lot of ceremony and a lot of, and, and it's like Jesus said, okay, let, let's take all that and transform that into something else. Let's transform that dead ceremony into life. Let's turn the natural into the supernatural. Let's change the ordinary into the extraordinary. So, so we have all of that going on, all at this wedding. Now, what I'm saying is the story simply is, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus was invited, along with his brothers and his mother, and he went. But the underlying story is full of all those innuendos and nuances that, that are saying something to us so that, so that this wedding in Cana in Galilee now has something to say to us in the context of our life because there's an underlying story. Do you get what I'm saying? And even in there, when it, it starts off by saying, um, you know, Jesus had done all this stuff, and then he says, and it, on the third day, Jesus went to. Now, of course, again, you've got all this stuff. The moment you read on the third day, in any of these stories, there's a story within the story. It's saying, hey, resurrection's about to take place, because resurrection is a third day thing. And Jesus rises on the third day. So what I'm trying to say to you is the, the overarching tells us there is a consistency of what, what, is, what is being accomplished here. The underlying story says these are all the little things that attach it to your life. Which is why I can read a story of David from 3,000 years ago and that story still has something to say to me now in the 21st century here in York as a non-Jew never having been raised in Jewish culture, but to see within that a story. So let me give you one, one little example, then I'll move on and wrap this up. So, so the Ark of the Covenant was important to the Israelites. It symbolically to them represented God's presence with them. You could even talk about what was in it and how it was built and there are those stories within stories, underlying things, that again, it, it matters not the specific historic accuracy. What matters is the underlying story. What is, what is God through this saying to me and bringing to me? So the ark was captured, which in their minds was, you know, we've, we've lost the presence. Uh, King David, who was the David who killed the Goliath, you know, and all that, uh, when he becomes king, he brings it back. But when he brings it back, he doesn't take it to where it had been before, where it was riddled with ceremony. He brings it back to, to Jerusalem, to the mount that was Zion, Mount Zion. And he doesn't build a structure for it as in a temple. 
He doesn't even follow the ceremony of what had been built in the wilderness, which was called the tabernacle, which had all these separations. He then just erects a simple tent in the middle of town and he puts the Ark of the Presence in there. And he does something else. Instead of doing all the stuff, all the bloodthirsty ceremonies that went on in the old tabernacle when Moses had it in the desert, now David appoints worshippers and singers and musicians to pay 24 hours a day. So suddenly he is giving access to something that by the old law system you should not have access to. But even under that system, he's found a place of grace that says, if you come under grace, you can have direct access without all the paraphernalia and the nonsense that goes along with it. And that was called David's tabernacle or David's tent. But in essence, it broke all the rules that had been set forward as the way that you come to God, when actually all those things were showing you that if you want to do this by ceremony, you'll always finish up a step away from where you need to be at best. David says, we're in. And it's wonderful. And so that's when he writes, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities the Lord will never count against him. And of course, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want all those, that great stuff that he's writing. Because he, he is doing something that is counterintuitive and coming from another revelation. So my point I'm making with that is that that can now speak to me because it says that there is access to God the Divine, the Father, without all the nonsense of the ceremony and ritual and the barriers that have been put in the way. I'm now being spoken to by the underlying story of David 3,000 years ago that's now saying, this is, this is the way in, this is it. I found it, you find it. So we could, we could do lots of stories like that, but um, we, won't, we won't bother. So... So I've probably said enough, so I'm just going to come back to our original scripture to finish off. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. That's all the stuff we've talked about, that as they pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, the valley of sorrow, they make it a place of springs. So who makes it a place of springs? They do. Why? Because they're now carrying something that brings a change to wherever they go. That's you and me. The autumn rains also cover it with pools and they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. That's what we just talked about, this place of open access and the presence of God going from, from strength to strength. So, that's pilgrimage. That's the way forward. And if we can find that place of wisdom, I believe we also go from strength to strength. So I'm done. That's it. I'm finished on that. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.